Do you ever feel like we're wandering between two worlds? Modernity as we knew it is passing away, and the next world is yet to be born? Like Dante, we are in a dark wood, struggling to know how to think and how to live. Virgil guided Dante with the light of natural reason, then Beatrice illuminated the path to paradise with Christian revelation. Welcome to the Beatrice Institute podcast, where Christian faith and reason illuminate the best of academic thinking and research. How should we think and live in this time between worlds? At Beatrice Institute, we take our bearings from the beautiful, the good, and the true. I'm Ryan McDermott. I direct Beatrice Institute's Genealogies of Modernity initiative. What does it mean to be modern? Where did we come from? And what comes next? Let's chat. Hi, friends. This is a really exciting episode for me. For the past three years, I've been working with an interdisciplinary group of scholars to produce a narrative podcast about genealogies of modernity. And today we're running a sneak preview of the first episode for you. The whole series is going to be released in its own feed starting the first week of November. So here in my thread of the Beatrice Institute podcast, I've been interviewing scholars who are interested in the complex relationship between the past and the present. I think that's a good way to describe it. This narrative podcast that we're releasing in November, and you get a sneak preview of today, doubles down on those interests with focused inquiries into the nature of modernity, the genealogical imagination, and the ways the past continues to be present and available to us today. Each episode tells a story or a set of stories that echoes but also challenges a particular standard narrative of what it means to be modern and how a particular modern phenomenon came about. We'll be releasing the first three episodes in the Beatrice Institute stream so that you, our core audience, can have early access. And we're also hoping that you'll share this series with your friends. That would be a huge help. So I'm the general producer and host of the whole series, but each episode has a lead scholar producer who decided on the topic, did the research, interviewed experts, and wrote the script. And for the first three episodes, that's me. I'm the lead producer, and so those are the ones that we'll be featuring in this stream of the Beatrice Institute podcast. Finally, before we launch into the first episode, I want to call your attention to the Genealogies of Modernity website and journal, where we'll be publishing a few short responses to each episode. And usually at least one of those responses will be from somebody in a closely related discipline, and at least one will come from somebody outside the episode's main discipline. These responses emerge from an in-person colloquium that we held in August when all of the responding scholars convened in Pittsburgh for two days of lively and really fun conversations about the podcast. And we would welcome further responses. So if one of these episodes inspires an idea or provokes an objection, please consider writing a short response for the Genealogies of Modernity journal you'll find submission instructions on the website genealogiesofmodernity.org. And now, I hope you enjoy Episode 1, Mountain Modernity. That sound is somebody in the zone, 
It's the rock climber Nina Williams climbing a very tall, very difficult boulder without a rope. She's on like two really tiny holds and uh, she jumps her feet. It's just like this little hop, jumping 45 feet off the ground without a rope. For me, it's not about feeling like I need this adrenaline rush. It's actually the opposite. I just want to reach this state of action of my body and tranquility in my mind. That music and dialogue is from The High Road, part of the Real Rock Climbing Video Festival. The short film documents Williams' effort to climb several daunting boulders in Bishop, California. Two of the boulders get the grade of V12, which is four grades more difficult than any move Alex Honnold did on his famous free solo of El Capitan. And if Williams were to fall from the top of one of these climbs, she would likely die, or at least be very seriously injured. After trying and failing many times before, the climber is now finally going to get to the top without falling. And when this kind of music starts, you know it's gonna happen. Being in tall places, I love that feeling of, of absolute certainty and control and confidence in a situation that seems totally dangerous. Oh, it's so psyched. But I can say with certainty, I've got this. Yeah, I want to be the first woman to climb that trifecta on that boulder. I don't want women to limit themselves. It's this primal instinct that overcomes me. It's just like, okay, you can't fall. You cannot fall right now. There seems to be something very timeless about this endeavor. It's a primal instinct that drives Williams. There's no ropes, no harness, no elaborate 21st century gear helping her make the climb, just her own body. And she's reaching after a timeless, transcendent, perhaps even spiritual unity of bodily action and inner peace. Nevertheless, some people would claim that what she's doing and expressing is a uniquely modern phenomenon. For the past few centuries, people from the poet William Wordsworth to the scholar Jakob Burkhardt have claimed that the love of seeing and climbing mountains is something that humankind only developed in the modern age, roughly since the 18th century. As we'll see, though, archaeological evidence suggests that humans from many, many centuries ago also took pleasure in climbing mountains. So what does this idea really mean, that there's something modern about mountain climbing? Well, the climbing itself isn't new. Even the enjoyment of climbing isn't new. What's new is that many people think that climbing makes us different from the generations that came before. That climbing makes us modern. And because of this, mountain climbing is an illuminating way to approach the very question of what it means to be modern. Welcome to Genealogies of Modernity. In this series, we will take up familiar stories about how we became modern and see how cutting-edge research challenges those stories and reveals new unexpected histories behind the present day. 
What we'll find is a series of alternative pathways to our modern moment and overlooked resources from the past that can help us flourish in the present. The word modern is used in many ways. In this episode alone, you'll hear scholars placing the dawn of modernity in the 14th century, the 18th century, and the 19th century. Your high school history books probably had a range of stories about how we became modern. Modernity is sometimes said to begin in the 17th century with the scientific revolution and the establishment of colonial powers in the New World or sometimes with the Enlightenment and the consolidation of nation-states in the 18th century. Or sometimes modernity takes off with the 19th century industrial revolution and widespread capitalization of financial markets. What's going on here? In the next episode, we'll dig into what it means to call something modern. But for now, we can notice that in all of these cases, the word modern marks a sharp contrast between now and what came before. In a stronger sense, modern can indicate a world-altering rupture from the past. Most importantly, to say modern is to adopt a particular way of thinking about history and about the present. We can call this kind of thinking and speaking modernity talk. Climbing is a great way to understand how modernity talk works, because according to a very influential story, the first modern man became modern by climbing a mountain. The scene is Mont Ventoux, the windy peak in the French Alps. Picture a cone-shaped mountain with a summit that looks as barren as Mars. Today, it's a famous destination of the Tour de France bike race, with a road leading up to the very top. But in 1336, Mont Ventoux was remote and forbidding enough that the Italian poet and humanist scholar Francesco Petrarch thought that nobody had ever climbed this mountain to the top. This is Peter Hansen, a historian at Worcester Polytechnic Institute who writes about the history of mountaineering. Petrarch wrote that in 1336 he climbed Mont Ventoux, taking a very circuitous route to the top, and he reached the summit Petrarch admired the view, looked all around, could see the rivers, the ocean. And then he thought to open up Augustine's Confessions, intending to read his at random. And when he opened, he read a passage that said, And men go to admire the high mountains and the huge waves of the sea, the broad flow of rivers and the expanse of the ocean, the orbit of the stars, and they pass themselves by. Petrarch was stunned, closed the book, and then decided that having seen enough of the mountain, I turned my inner eye toward myself. He descended from the peak uh, and wrote to his uh, mentor to tell him the story of this ascent. In the 19th century, scholars seized on this scene as an exemplar of the discovery of the modern individual man. Two details caught their attention. First, Petrarch had climbed a mountain that his ancestors had never dared to climb, or so they thought. And second, at the top of the mountain, communing with nature, Petrarch turned inward to discover something even more magnificent than the mountain, the human self. One of those scholars was Swiss historian Jakob Burkhardt, whose 1860 book, The Civilization of the Renaissance in Italy, was profoundly influential on how later scholars thought about modernity. 
what it represented for him was man discovering himself in nature and this was the birth of modern man Jakob Burkhardt popularized that kind of modernity talk for Burkhardt the birth of individualism discovery of man and nature decline of superstition had created the Renaissance a civilization which was the mother of our own it was no accident that Burkhardt zeroed in on mountain climbing as the scene of the birth of modern man he was writing his groundbreaking book in Basel, Switzerland, surrounded by a burgeoning culture of mountain climbing. In the foothills of the Alps, Burkhardt could see all around him climbing of mountains in the 1850s. Mountaineers from Switzerland and Germany and the rest of, the, of Europe are going to the Alps really in numbers that had not been seen before. People looking around then said about the mountaineers, really this shows their is something new under the sun that there is something new it makes it modern for people to be climbing mountains nobody in 1336 saw petrarch was modern because he at least of all himself by climbing the mountain but go forward several centuries and in the mid 19th century that because people then were climbing mountains they would look back for their antecedents their ancestors the people who were like them who could they could point to as being the precursors or the first the climbers themselves were pushing this narrative one englishman was particularly influential because he was both an alpine mountaineer and a well-known victorian writer leslie stephen was a man of letters who was a scholar of 18th century writing and he looked at people's accounts of mountains and he said there's a dividing line in 1760 where people like Horace Benedict de Saussure he was like the Luther of the mountains or the Robespierre of mountaineering he was a transition figure that marks a change and from people before and after Stephen said it's the old school and the new school this is something new this is modern Leslie Stevens and Jakob Burkhardt's ideas were profoundly influential in the 20th century, and they continue to shape the way we think about both climbing and modernity. But as we will hear shortly, recent scholarship has challenged this history of mountain climbing, and that challenge opens up new ways of thinking about what it means to be modern. In a general way, the term modern designates a split with the past, a point in time where some change occurs that's radical enough to usher in a new era. But what modern means more specifically depends on what kind of change we've identified. 19th and 20th century scholars focused on a change in people's attitudes toward mountains as evidence of a broader shift in humanity's relationship to nature and, in particular, individuals' feelings of control over their environment. In 1959, scholar Marjorie Hope Nicholson published Mountain Gloom and Mountain Glory. The tension expressed by Nina Williams between feelings of fear and feelings of control that tension is central to Nicholson's thesis about pre-modern and modern attitudes to mountains. It's probably the book that she's most famous for, um, and it's called Mountain Gloom and Mountain Glory, The Development of the Aesthetics of the Infinite. It's like she's setting up this distinction between us, modern people, and not modern people. <laughs> 
That's Don Hollis, a classical historian at University of St. Andrews in Scotland. Yeah, so um, I'm Don Hollis, and I would describe myself as a historian of mountains and a historian of people's experiences of mountains. Nicholson associated the feeling of fear with pre-modern people's experiences of mountains. Here's Hollis reading from the introduction to Mountain Gloom, Mountain Glory. For hundreds of years, most men who climbed mountains had climbed them fearfully, grimly, resenting the necessity, only on rare occasions suggesting the slightest aesthetic gratification. I want to put a pin in this, this contrast between necessity and aesthetic gratification. It will be a thread that runs throughout the story we're examining here. Is it possible to climb mountains just for the sense of delight and beauty and excitement that Nina Williams described? Or are you only climbing the mountains because you need to, because you have to access a high-up cache of food stores or attack a neighboring group on the other side? What's the real motivation for the impressive feats of climbing humans have done throughout history? Marjorie Hope Nicholson drew a very stark contrast between utilitarian and non-utilitarian reasons for rock climbing and for going up into the mountains. This stark contrast was something Don Hollis wanted to probe further. She was obsessed as a teenager with the 1920s Everest expeditions. And when she went to college, she joined the Oxford University Mountaineering Club and found herself taking mountains as her research topic in graduate school. And so, yeah, I definitely came from that perspective of I love mountains and I want to find... And to me, it was like, well, that's so weird that people used to not like mountains. I want to find more out about that. Because Marjorie Hope Nicholson seems to have thought pre-modern people could not have taken pleasure in mountain climbing. But then when I came to it and actually started reading it more and more, I was like, hmm, even the bits where you could read it as them not liking mountains, I think that's us applying sort of modern standards to early modern attitudes. Yeah. And then there are also times when it's definitely, you know, they're definitely enjoying being in the mountains. And, and, and that for me is sort of like what the whole mountain gloom, mountain glory discourse, which extends way beyond just Nicholson, is all about, when you really get down to it, is about saying, us today, us modern people, we are better than those people back then, <laughs> because, and one of the reasons why we're better is because we realise that mountains are great and they didn't. Nicholson and other writers of that era are implicated, sort of almost unconsciously, in these sort of implicit narratives of modernity. As we'll see, pre-modern people felt all kinds of things about mountains and climbing, including probably the flow state that climber Nina Williams described at the top of the episode. So Hollis got to thinking, how is it possible that Nicholson and I read the same things and heard them in completely different ways? Where were those ideas coming from? What was creating the thought space that allowed Nicholson to see what she saw and not to see the other things that I'm seeing? So she talks about someone called Thomas, Thomas Courier, who's climbing in the Alps in the 17th century. Um, and he's crossing various Alpine passes. And there are these chair bearers who are going up the same pass. And they make their money by carrying people up mountains um, on a chair suspended between two poles. And he doesn't want to. He prides himself on being a walker. He wants to do it himself. Um, but he doesn't know the way. So he's trying to follow these people. And they keep going faster and faster to try and tire out. And eventually he gives up and he's like, oh, I was so exhausted that I had to pay them to carry me. 
um, because they sort of basically they beat him, you know. Um, uh, and so he's saying that he's, you know, terrified of the swaying of being on this chair. And he gets to the top and he sort of looks out at the past and he's like, oh, it's so amazing. I'm above the clouds. Um, uh, but he also quotes um, Virgil in this quotation, which can roughly be translated as one day it will be pleasure to look on even this. Um, and there's two, uh, and that whole passage, Nicholson interprets it. She says, you know, Corey was terrified every second that he was on his mountain. Whereas the way I read that is actually he's, you know, he's sort of making this physical effort. He's then defeated. Um, he doesn't particularly like the experience of being on a chair, swaying between two blokes. And then he gets to the top, and I think that that's sort of that quotation he makes of um, one day it will be a pleasure to look on even this is exactly what an awful lot of, I think, mountaineers would say in the moment of being in a snowstorm, aching, hungry, tired, that, you know, it's only in the aftermath that you can look back and, and really experience it as pleasure. You can't experience it as, as pleasure in the moment because there's other haptic experiences going on which are not necessarily pleasant at the moment. Right, yeah, um, it's, it's type two fun. Yeah, type two fun, exactly, yeah. Um, uh, uh, and it's... But, but Nicholson, you know, she, she has this passage very early on in the introduction where she says that, you know, um, people see in nature what we've been taught to look for. We feel what we've been prepared to feel. But I think that's also true of history. You know, she is reading these early modern texts and she's expecting to find negative attitudes to, to nature. And so she finds them. In her research, Hollis has come across numerous examples of pre-modern people who loved mountains. In fact, loving mountains seems to have been so commonplace that people didn't write books about it. So if you look on the Wikipedia page for Ben Nevis, it will say that the first recorded, the first ascent of Ben Nevis was sometime, I think, in the 1770s. Ben Nevis is the highest peak in Scotland. And I was in the archives um, in Edinburgh, and I was reading this sort of series of letters um, from the sort of 1600s. And there's this dude who's writing to his friends and he's like, oh, I'm visiting um, Fort William. Um, and I went to Top of Ben Nevis yesterday and I found a piece of ice the size of my hat. Um, that was interesting. And I came down. And I'm like, you don't write about it like that if, if climbing to the Top of Ben Nevis is not something that is commonly done. Dawn went on a climbing trip of her own to the Alps. High in the mountains, she found a seasonal village where locals would take their animals to graze in the summer. Here, she came across more evidence of pre-modern mountain climbing, evidence that dated from even further back in time. It's a high sort of glacial basin, and you see the sort of glaciers coming down and the peaks sort of immediately around you. Um, and there's all of the houses that have, the, the, the sort of the, the, the buildings that they'd have lived in. But then the church, the sort of chapel for that settlement is a bit of a walk away. And you have to walk up and out of the base, over to the lip of the basin, to the edge of the valley. This was a very old church. Hollis afterwards went and dug into the archives, as historians do, and she found records of repairs being made on the church in the 1500s. So we're talking a medieval church. And I was standing there, and I looked out, and I'm like, this is the most, this view is absolutely beautiful. It is a view of mountains, of glaciers, of peaks. And this is where they deliberately decided to build a church. They could have built the chapel much, much closer to the settlement, 
far away from these mountains. If and, and I was like, there is no way that people who thought the mountains were horrible and distasteful and the wreckage of the world, there is no way they would have built their chapel right here. Instead, well, it was also probably much more difficult to build yeah, it up there. Exactly. And so it's like, well, so it's in, and to me, I was like, well, it felt like, you know, if you're, you're walking to worship God and then you're stepping out and you're like, ah, oh, <laughs> here is why we're worshiping. Um, and to, to me, so that was like a real kind of moment of like, aha. I had my own aha moment on a solo road trip through the American Southwest when I was 17 years old. I got a rare pass to hike in and spend the night under the Anasazi cliff dwellings at Keet Seal in northern Arizona. This was a site older than even Hollis's late medieval church in the Alps. And when I visited, scholars believed that this site represented the last desperate gasp of the Anasazi civilization, which had been brought to ruin by famine and war in the 14th century. The theory was that the Anasazi people had been driven into the cliffs by brute necessity to escape their attackers. Fear of their enemies, the theory went, overcame their fear of heights. It was a theory that fitted perfectly with Marjorie Hope Nicholson's view. But my adolescent romantic self resisted that thesis. It couldn't be an exhaustive explanation, I thought, because... I loved climbing, and these people clearly knew how to climb, and I looked up at those cliffs, and I thought, surely they loved climbing like me. Yeah, the, the one thing that I would say that, that becomes clear as you study, you know, the Anasazi or, the, or Fremont or anybody else is that life was pretty grim, that you were very hungry and thirsty and likely cold or hot, <laughs> A lot of the time, it was very, very rugged, you know, difficult life that you were carving out. That's geographer Larry Coates bursting my bubble of teenage enthusiasm. So I'm Larry Coates. I'm a professor in geography at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. Larry reminded me that, yes, life was hard and utilitarian concerns would have been top priority for the residents of Keats Seal. But the more I talked to Larry and his colleague Shannon Boomgarden, the more it became clear to me that this stark divide I had been operating under between utilitarian and non-utilitarian reasons to climb, between work and leisure or necessity and aesthetic gratification, that divide was itself a modern way of viewing things. These contrasts map onto Marjorie Hope Nicholson's belief that pre-modern people feared mountains while modern people enjoyed them. If you're afraid of steep cliffs, the only reason you would scale them would be if you absolutely have to. But the more I talked with scholars of the Fremont and Anasazi peoples, the more examples I encountered to show that people in all times and places could do scary things for fun or find enjoyment in useful work or blend business and pleasure. I'm Shannon Boomgarden, and um, I've been working in Range Creek Canyon uh, over 20 years now, first as a grad student and now as the director. Um, the field station is managed uh, by the University of Utah and the Natural History Museum of Utah. Shannon and Larry study the Fremont people who inhabited East Central Utah in the 12th century far north from and a couple years earlier than the Anasazi who had built the cliff dwellings at Keats Seal. 
But what they have been discovering has really helped me wrap my head around what those pre-modern climbers did and did not have in common with modern climbing. So Range Creek runs through the center of Range Creek Canyon, and it's a perennial creek. And then the cliff sides are, you know, 900 feet above that to it, you know, and, and rising and kind of winding along the creek. Up inside those cliffs, the Fremont built probably hundreds of granaries to store corn, and more than 100 are still there perched in the most improbable places. Is actually completely constructed out of wood and it's cantilevered off the cliff. There are these beams that have to actually support the the structure of the thing sticking off the cliff below. It all looks like it should just fall off the cliff immediately, but it's been there for at least 900 years. Now, these crazily located granaries clearly had utilitarian purposes. But Larry Coates thinks there's more to them than just functional storage for food. There's much more going on than just putting it somewhere visible. There's also some some level of kind of what I always think is kind of like, let me show you where I can build one of these things. (laughs) So maybe, you know social expression or just bragging rights i don't really know but there's there's definitely the 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 sighting of these of these granaries is is really off the charts in some places one of those places has been given a very modern name locomotive rock it's actually a freestanding pinnacle locomotive rock is and so it's we we did the first post Fremont ascent of it, and <laughs> and it found a bunch of sites on, on on the pinnacle, all around the pinnacle, tucked around it. Did I mention that Larry is an accomplished rock climber and that he's headed up the exploration of these granaries, most of which require modern technical rock climbing methods and technology? It's actually one of the few somewhat pleasant climbs in the canyon that it it sort of protects and. <laughs> The moves aren't bad. <laughs> so it was about, you know, five, seven-ish. So it was, it's kind of pleasant. We've done it a few times now. But, but then we were blown away by what we found up there because immediately like 10 feet below the summit of this thing, the first thing I saw was this beautiful deeply dish matate. So some grandma was sitting up there grinding corn <laughs> next to the summit of this thing at some point. And it's just the craziest thing imaginable. (laughs) But it actually gets crazier because Locomotive Rock features some pictographs, images carved into the cliff itself. These cultural artifacts are definitely not there for pure survival. In fact, chipping these images into the cliffside was very dangerous. There's also a, a, an incredible rock art panel at the very top of this thing. So it's, it's the famous one that everyone, you know, cites for the canyon. It's, it's actually our, our uh, Range Creek logo for the, the research project. And it's carved onto this face that has an uh, uh, undercut under it that's at least 15 feet, and that's 90 feet above the ground. And I was the first one that rappelled down to it to really get a close look. And I actually found a, a couple of footholds and a little, a little crimp on the left hand that you could have stood there and pecked this very elaborate petroglyph. <laughs> However, 
I don't know how you'd get out from under the, under the overhang, so I think they must have built some sort of scaffold since we know that they could do that to get the person out there. But then I think they actually kind of hung from the cliff and pecked these very beautiful, elaborate uh, petroglyphs. And that's mind-blowing. <laughs> a pictograph carved over a rock overhang where only the gods could see it. That doesn't seem like something done for purely utilitarian purposes. It's hard to see how the brute necessity that supposedly drove the Fremont to these cliffs could have motivated these improbably placed images. But maybe this isn't a story about brute necessity after all. Maybe this ancient people also took some pleasure in scaling the cliffs and showing off what they could do there. In other words, maybe what they felt about climbing was very similar to what has been felt by many so-called modern climbers. So we've seen evidence from the 16th century, from the Middle Ages, and from very early peoples in the Americas, all suggesting that people climbed cliff faces and mountains for more than just base necessity. They found enjoyment and wonder in high places. Even the activities we associate today with necessity, like grain storage, could be blended with completely unnecessary undertakings like rock art. So how did the idea get started that the love of mountains was a uniquely modern phenomenon instead of a universal human experience? That was an idea that didn't originate with Nicholson in the 20th century. Don Hollis traces it to what is sometimes called the Romantic period, in England in the late 17 and early 1800s, and particularly to the poet William Wordsworth. William Wordsworth, you know, the inaugurator of this sort of romantic, of, the, of, this, of this new style of poetry, as he puts it, um, is then in his later life, living in the Lake District, you know, very famously sort of, uh, I wondered lonely as a cloud, um, seeing the daffodils and stuff like that. Um, and there's this proposal for a railway running into the Lake District so that more people, particularly poorer people, can access the Lake District. And he writes these letters to the editor of the Morning Post to sort of argue against why this should be. Um, and it's really interesting because he's sort of arguing that it, he says, well, there's no point letting poor people come here because they won't, appreciate mountains. And so he's having to make an argument that the appreciation of mountains is not innate to human nature. The implication is that it is only certain humans, modern enlightened humans, who developed the capacity to appreciate mountains. He's trying to make an argument that it is something which is developed um, and developed only in the upper classes and particularly in William Wordsworth. <laughs> um, so he sort of rests his argument on the assertion that the relish for choice and picturesque natural scenery is of quite recent origin. Um, and so he writes, uh, talks about a various a whole list of writers from the 17th century. And he says that until the late 18th century, there is not a single traveller whose published write writings disprove the assertion that where precipitous rocks and mountains are mentioned at all, they are spoken of as objects of dislike and fear, not of admiration. Um, so he's basically saying, well, those people in the past didn't appreciate, didn't appreciate mountains um, because they hadn't yet developed the sort of taste for mountains. Now, Wordsworth himself was not what I would call a great mountaineer. I mean, the guy liked to hike. He liked to compose poetry while he was hiking. 
But it was really in the next century that English outdoors men and women started to embrace mountaineering. As we heard from Peter Hansen, in the late 1800s, people like Leslie Stephen were taking on challenging peaks and climbing cliffs that today would be considered dangerous without ropes. In 1871, Stephen wrote a book called The Playground of Europe, which describes his and his friends' alpine exploits. This book became a kind of ideological handbook of 19th and early 20th century European climbers. He makes this comment towards the end of his article um, that my readers will agree that the love of mountains is intimately connected with all that is noblest in human nature. Um, And he then says that um, it should be the purpose of the following pages to prove that whilst all good and wise men necessarily love the mountains, those love them best who have wandered longest in their recesses and have most endangered their own lives and those of their guides in the attempt to open out roots amongst them. So he, Leslie Stephen, definitely identifies himself. And, and that to me is the key to his whole article on the old school and the new school is he is saying, I, re- I love mountains so much. I love mountains so much. And the love of mountains is one of the pinnacles of sort of human development. And this is where I'm at. <laughs> so if we have all these examples of pre-modern people clearly relishing being in the mountains, wanting to go up high to build things on top of peaks, What do we make then of this idea that there's a real difference between the modern experience of mountains and the pre-modern experience? Well, there's a few pieces to the answer. One is that 18th and 19th century Europeans found pleasure in climbing for a genuinely new reason. Here's Peter Hansen. From the 18th century onwards, many people looked at the mountain as something that they could climb to show that they were modern men that they could triumph over nature. According to Hansen, one aspect of climbing that definitely emerges after the 18th century, and especially in the 19th century, was the vision of climbing as an assertion of the individual will over nature. Mountain climbing let people discover themselves in nature, as Petrarch was said to have done, yet they discovered themselves not through inward philosophical or spiritual reflection, but by proving to themselves that they could conquer the nature around them. But there's a tension here because climbing is hard. Climbers fall. People die on mountains. The idea that what you're going to do by climbing the mountain is to demonstrate your mastery, your individual will over nature is something that's, uh, you know, you don't control the game. Perhaps the best example of this tension is the Oscar-winning film Free Solo, which documents climber Alex Honnold's ascent of Yosemite's El Capitan without ropes. I mean, the, the Free Solo film, in some ways, is the, in a, the embodiment of this myth of the individual climber uh, doing something completely on their own. They're not tied to anyone else. I mean, that is the almost the highest expression of this longer tradition of the individual exerting their will to climb the peak. Of course, Alex Honnold couldn't have soloed El Capitan without a huge community of people. The partners that he went up there with on ropes year after year to dial in the moves. Even the camera crew helped bail him out one time when he got scared. But the fiction of the individual self mastering nature is what dominates the film. 
And I think what we see when we start to peel back the layers is a tension that Hansen says has always been there in modern climbing. So there's something that's more uh, fundamental or foundational that I would relate to our experience of modernity. So that this experience of partnership with other people, but the desire to assert the notion that you were doing it by yourself, that tension emerges in mountaineering and in other fields and other places. And, and it remains with us. This 19th century notion that climbing represents the triumph of the individual will obscures the actual collective activity involved in climbing. But it does demonstrate an important point that we'll see over and over in this series. Humans can undertake what looks like the very same activity generation after generation, but the meaning of what they're doing, what it represents to the people doing it, that meaning can change. I mean, there's differences of practice, differences of what people are doing when they're at the top. So you might see a continuity of what seems from a common sense point of view to be the same. People went to the top of the mountain. But what that meant at different times could have been very, very different. You know, what it meant to go to the top of the mountain for some acts of religious devotion was a different attitude than someone who's going there to say, I'm conquering the mountain. You know, if I'm literally putting my foot on top in order to express my dominance over it, that's very different from the people, say, who went to Mont Ventoux as uh, Catholic pilgrims in the 19th century, or the, we'll call them pilgrims who were going to celebrate some kind of a sung uh, cult at, at an earlier era. Remember Mont Ventoux? That's the same mountain Petrarch climbed, the one that 19th century scholars said made him the first modern man. But he was far from the first to climb it. And, you know, there's, there are archaeologists who've gone to the top of uh, Mont Ventoux, and they found, you know, um, circles from rituals of some kind on the summit from antiquity that date to, you know, so... Uh, celebration of gods of the sun and uh, there's religious items of religious devotion that date from before and after petrarch and of course the summit becomes the place where crosses are erected after petrarch but in the 17th century 18th century 19th century they put a big iron cross on the top and there's a television tower now uh, erected sometime in the, in the 20th century and you can see some places like that that are accessible to communities that have been occupied for literally centuries or millennia that uh, even if we don't know about it they were there you know people went to some mountaintops like that however similar or different the contemporary act of climbing may be to what was done before we are divided from past peoples by the meaning we attribute to the climb, including sometimes our sense that our climbing exemplifies our modern identity. And this brings us to one of the most fundamental notions of modernity we'll explore. More fundamental than the notion that being a modern person means being able to discover yourself in nature or conquer nature. For some generations of climbers, mountain climbing did not represent a difference from the generations that had come before. Think of that letter casually referencing a climb up Benevis, 
as though this were a totally ordinary thing to do. But for other later generations, climbing a mountain did represent a difference. Accurately or not, they told themselves that by virtue of scaling mountains, they were acting, thinking, and feeling differently than humans had done before. And it's that assertion of radical difference that really made them modern. People in the past climbed mountains and apparently enjoyed it, just as people do today. But people long ago did not think that climbing made them different from the people who came before them. These 18th and 19th century mountaineers, though, did. And when that started happening, when people started saying, aha, here I am, the first at the top of this mountain, and that makes me different and modern, well, saying that is what makes them modern. This is one of the key ideas we'll explore in this series, that the claim to be modern is a claim to have made a radical separation from the past. Climbers in the 19th century made this claim, but historical evidence shows that it wasn't entirely true. And that's often the case with such claims, as we'll see in later episodes. So that leaves us with the question, what narratives about the past work better? not just about climbing, but all the other parts of our lives. What stories from the past will really help us understand what it means to be modern? And what is at stake when we adopt the language of modernity? It's about saying, us today, us modern people, we are better than those people back then. <laughs> because, And one of the reasons why we're better is because we realize that mountains are great and they didn't. One of the things at stake in using the language of modernity is precisely this implication that not only are we different from the people in the past, but this difference is one of superiority. We are better than the people of the past, more enlightened, more moral, more cultured, what have you. And this carries the further implication that since we are better than those people, we couldn't possibly be made any better by attending to and learning about them they couldn't possibly have anything to teach us. But as this episode shows, there is still a lot to learn about the past. Once we start looking around the world and across world history, we can find alternative stories and images of what it might mean to be modern, what it means to live in the present world, where our world came from, and how else we might live in it. When we really dig into this history, we will often be surprised by the inspiration and wisdom we discover for new ways of living in the present. Here's Peter Hansen again. It's the, the idea that that's the only way where there are these alternate paths. There are these, there's not just that one way of being or relating to the mountain and there are these alternate ways of doing it. Those are still available to us from traditions from the past and they're available to us in ways we haven't yet described and haven't yet created. So there's ways to build new worlds, new forms of connections with nature and with the mountain that will be right for our time or for the, this, this next generation. The past is not an inert background to the present. The past is alive, and our relationship to the past changes as our times change. Imagine being that person who claimed the first ascent of Ben Nevis in 1771. He may well have thought, as Wordsworth wrote, that the appreciation of mountains is not innate to human nature, and that it took a truly noble soul like himself to dare to conquer the summit. 
Now we look back and smile, recognizing that people had been climbing Ben Nevis for ages. They just didn't think it made them nobler or more fully human than their ancestors. Those so-called modern mountaineers weren't just wrong about the past. In so many ways, they were also wrong about the future of climbing. Because they considered themselves so radically different from their ancestors, and because they prized the individual's conquest over nature, they missed glimpsing in the past the feelings that would arguably become the driving force of contemporary climbing. That peace and union with nature that Nina Williams described. And also, the sense of community among climbers that has made climbing gyms some of the most popular gathering places in present-day America. As we venture into the past in this series, I invite you to a deeper experience of our common humanity and to a richer sense of the resources that the past offers for imagining new ways of flourishing in the future. In the next episode, we're going to take up the problem of modernity by going back more than a thousand years to ancient China. There, perhaps surprisingly, we'll find modernity talk that sounds strikingly similar to recent ways of relating the present to the past. And we'll also learn why that modernity talk failed in ancient China and why it's still such a risky move to try to deploy it today. Thanks for listening. If you appreciated this episode, please rate and review us on your podcast platform of choice. We love to hear from listeners. Chat with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can also learn more about our programming at beatriceinstitute.org. That's beatriceinstitute, all one word, dot org. And if you are a university student or faculty member in Pittsburgh and would like to be involved locally, check out our fellows program and get in touch. This episode was mixed and mastered by Yellow Music and Sound. Until next time, I'm Ryan McDermott. Go with God. Go with God.